0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Institute for Policy Innovations podcast. We're coming to you from the studios of the Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Merrill Matthews with the Institute for Policy Innovation. Today is September 7, 2023, and I'm joined in studio by IPI's Addie Cremens. And also joining us from Austin is Scott Braddock. Scott is a journalist and political analyst covering Texas politics and the state legislature. And he's the editor of the Quorum Report. Scott, thank you for taking the time to join us. Of course, great to be with you all. Since we're all in Texas, all three of us have been paying close attention to the impeachment trial of suspended Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton. But, Scott, you're there in Austin, and you sort of see this live. Give the listeners a little background of what's happening. Why is is General Paxton in this trial?
1: Uh, it is fascinating to see uh, when you have uh, someone who's been under indictment for about eight years now. Uh, of course, those allegations that have to do with securities fraud are going to play out uh, in a, a criminal proceeding mm-hmm. uh, in Houston that is on on hold for right now uh, mm-hmm. while this impeachment trial plays out. But you, you do have the walls kind of closing in on Ken Paxton. Um, and, you know, even some of his biggest supporters, like, for example, Senator Ted Cruz, have said, hey, you know, He does have some legal and ethical issues, even though the, you know, the voters of Texas did choose him once again to be attorney general because of his conservative record as AG. Uh, But when I say the walls are closing in, think about the fact that you do have that criminal trial that will play out in Houston, this impeachment trial that's happening right now in the Texas Senate in Austin. And also down in San Antonio, it's been reported that a federal grand jury is looking into some things connected to Paxton. So it's uh, possible that we might see a federal indictment of him as well. On a whole host of charges, I mean, we could sit here for the whole podcast and just go through what all the allegations are. I won't wear you out with that. I'll just give you some of the top line things. I mean, he's accused of accepting bribes, of covering up an extramarital affair, uh, of doing favors for a contributor of his and somebody who helped to facilitate his extramarital affair. That's part of the allegations here. Uh, and so the trial, uh, which I know you've been watching, it's been sort of engrossing, right? Right To see the, hmm. you know, the back and forth between the witnesses and these top flight attorneys on both sides, by the way, legendary attorneys, uh, both representing Paxton and representing the House. Um, but look, I think to, to answer the question of how we got here exactly, um, you have had supporters of Paxton say, Uh, that, look, most of this was known to voters, and so voters have the final say on these things, and so we shouldn't be going through a process like this now. Um, There are some things that have come out as part of these proceedings that voters did not know. For example, um, the uh, allegations include uh, evidence to suggest uh, that there were burner phones used and a fake Uber account, an Uber account with a fake name, which I don't even know how you set that up since you have to have a credit card when you set up an Uber account, that there were there were um, some great lengths gone to by the AG to try to cover up that extramarital affair and cover up the relationship with this investor, Nate Paul in Houston, who is the guy who is said to have uh, benefited greatly from his relationship uh, to Paxton. The other thing that's that's new, and I think can't, this, this part can't be uh, controverted uh, as far as it being after the election. You remember the beginning of the year the attorney general asked the legislature to pay $3.3 million of your and my tax dollars, sorry, $3.3 million in Texas tax dollars, for a settlement to go to some of his former employees who were the ones who told the FBI that Paxton might be involved in some things that look to be you know, criminal activity. Um, and it was at that point that the Speaker of the House, Dave Phelan, uh, and a, a majority of Republicans in the House uh, pushed back. And said, well, look, I don't know that that's a proper use of tax dollars for for Texas taxpayers to be on the hook to settle up the personal legal issues of the AG doesn't seem quite right. So lawmakers asked him to come and answer questions about that. The Speaker of the House at the time, back at the beginning of the regular session earlier this year, uh, Dade Phelan had said, look, it, it's not on me to convince the members of the House that it's an appropriate use of that $3 million to settle up with these people who have accused Paxton, that Paxton should answer the questions about that. Paxton had an opportunity to do that. He was uh, before the Texas House uh, Appropriations Committee, that's the committee that writes the budget. And when they were asking him questions about that settlement, he wouldn't answer them. He had an attorney there with him who wouldn't really answer them either. Um, And so that's when the House started to look into this they opened their own investigation of Paxton, so many investigations of him. This House investigation not only ended with Republicans and Democrats agreeing uh, that taxpayers shouldn't be on the hook for that $3 million, but that also he's engaged in activity that is impeachable. And that's, and you know, the old saying that, you know, you'll say, what's an impeachable offense? Well, it's whatever the House thinks is impeachable. Uh, but overwhelmingly, the House found him to be impeachable. 121 members of the House out of 150, with, by the way... 70% of Republican members of the House voting to impeach Paxton, a small group voting against it, and now this has moved over to the Texas Senate. And of course, if people think about it the way that you would think of a, uh, a criminal proceeding, uh, you know, something that would happen in a criminal courtroom, the House basically indicts. They're like the grand jury. And then the actual jury is the members of the Senate. And so they now are sitting and listening to all this testimony with the lieutenant governor acting as the judge in the case. It's fascinating to watch this all play out.
2: So, Scott, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it almost seems like we're working backwards in terms of the $3.3 million lawsuit was sort of what shined a light on everything, and we seem to be unpacking it in reverse. The fact that Attorney General Paxton was asking taxpayers to sort of foot this bill to for the whistleblowers mm-hmm. led us to testimony from all of these whistleblowers. Um, and so we're kind of learning in reverse the the steps that took them to get to this place to, to file the lawsuit in the first place. So let's talk about the first couple of days of the trial, um, what that's looking like. Um, I, I think we've had, I think we're on our third witness. We've seen Jeff Matier, Ryan Bangert, and I think we're on Ryan Vassar. And these are all people who used to work for Attorney General Ken Paxton and um, resigned and were part of the group that went to the FBI And we're kind of getting a a better look at what their concerns were, their complaints were, why they um, in the first place felt like uh, they needed to to sort of uh, raise the alarm about about what was going on with Nate Paul, with, with all of these different aspects.
1: It's a good way to put it. Uh, You know, when the when the Texas House opened their investigation into Paxton leading to the impeachment, um, it it stemmed from the fact that Paxton wouldn't answer questions about why he needed that three million dollars that you're talking about. And so the investigation then sought to answer those questions. And so those are the people that uh, were talked to by House investigators. Those are the people who are now on the witness stand to uh, some of them already, as you mentioned, three of them uh, now uh, have been on the stand answering questions about why they were concerned about the um, activities of the attorney general. Um, and I think in large part, as you watch the back and forth between the defense attorneys and the prosecutors in the case, um, the, the main narrative. So at least so far has held up, which is that these folks who had concerns about the AG's activities, um, they still have those concerns. And it looks like they would do it all again, um, you know, no matter what the defense attorneys are saying, which is uh, and I think, you know, this is this is fair. And Meryl, I know you've been watching it as well. Fair to say that the defense attorneys have been sort of trying to trip up these folks about, you know, specific (laughs) dates or when when an email went out, that sort of stuff. But the main story still holds together, but at least as far as I've been watching it, and of course, look, I've been a Paxton critic for a while, but I'm trying to let this play out and see where this goes. Um, I, I think that the uh, defense attorneys have not had what they need here just yet, which is a big aha moment where it seems like, wow, one of these people who pointed the finger at Paxton has really, you know, been tripped up, caught in a lie anything like that. I just haven't seen anything like that just yet. Maybe it's coming. Um, these defense attorneys, these defense attorneys keep acting, they keep acting like it will, uh, including the lead defense attorney, uh, Tony Busby. But, um, you know, you'll see throughout the the questioning where Busby will be questioning someone and he'll say, he'll say, well, you know, maybe you don't have an answer for that. Well, we'll come back to that. And but then he never that- comes back to whatever that thing is. And so, so we keep waiting for uh, for something uh, to really poke a hole in the prosecution's case, I don't see it yet.
2: I think there's a couple things to keep in mind. the The jurors are the members of the Senate, and I think there's a trial that's happening with the people who will ultimately make the decision and the public, um, the perception of it. And I think the defense, in my opinion, seems to to sort of be playing to the public, and mm-hmm. what they're bringing up TLR and um yeah. uh, kind of trying to make it 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 feels conspiratorial it it, it feels like um they they want to create um chaos in terms of uh, questions in in the minds of 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 people of the public but the the decision will come down to the members of the Senate who are the jurors and the other piece that i think is important to point out um Rusty Harden who's been sort of the head um piece of the the prosecuting side has made it a point to establish with every witness their conservative and Christian evangelical credentials. And I think he's trying to do this to establish, you know, Ken Paxton's base is of course, conservative, but also evangelical. And, you know, before he begins his line of questioning to each of these witnesses, he's asking about their families and their children and, um, their political affiliations. And, and I think that's an important contrast that he's trying, trying to sort of um, draw in terms of these, these witnesses don't want to be there. They didn't want this to happen. This is not um, a a chip they had on their bingo card. They, they, they don't want to be there. And um, these are tried and true conservatives.
1: They are, and I think it's important to point that out, Addie, because there is a huge political component to this, right? I mean, you do have the defense both in their public statements, you know, prior to the gag order, and in some of the arguments they're making now that there's this conspiracy to take down a conservative attorney general. Um, and supporters of Paxton have tried to make it sound like it's a bunch of liberals who are doing this, right? That it's Democrats mm-hmm. in the House and it's it's some liberal people who used to work in the office of the attorney general. But if you take Jeff Matier as the uh, primary example of that just being false, Jeff Mateer, and your listeners can go check this out. You don't have to take my word for it. This guy is a rock rib conservative. And to your point, Addie, they talked about that quite a bit uh, when Mateer was on the stand. I mean, this is a guy who says that his dream job was not necessarily to be on the federal bench, although it's important to point out you know, for people who think maybe he's some liberal, he was appointed by President Trump to be on the federal bench. And his appointment didn't work out. It was withdrawn uh, because some Democrats and some more moderate Republicans thought that they, they thought maybe he was too conservative. He was too uh, conservative. To be on, he he was. It, a, it, right. They
2: perceived him as anti-LGBTQ. Uh, I mean, it, it, was, it was the other. And I, I found it interesting when Tony yeah. Busby's cross-examination, um, it, at some point he said, well, don't you want to be AG? And this guy, he he was almost, it was almost a joke. I mean, Jeff Mateer was was very clearly, he's a public servant and he's a conservative. Right. I mean, he has, he doesn't have a political bone in his body in terms of this sort of slick presentation. You know, he's very sincere, very um, earnest.
1: I mean, I think to, to bolster your point, it's it's maybe not that he doesn't have a political bone in his body because he cares about politics and public policy, but he doesn't really care about being an office holder. Right. I yes. mean, that's not his. Yes. He mm-hmm. said that his dream, he said his dream job is to be at First Liberty Institute. Right. Which and the, the main thing they do uh, is advocate for conservative causes, advocate for religious liberty and try to uh, encourage the appointment of federal judges um, you know, on the federal bench. And so uh, the idea that this is something that's been driven by liberals is just um, it, it, it doesn't hold up at all when you look at the facts you know, I think to the, to the point that you brought up about. The jury um, in this case being the senators. Um, I do think that it's worth pointing out that when this trial started on Tuesday, that Paxton's first move through his defense attorneys was to try to get that jury to just dismiss this whole thing and not even have a trial. Right. They had they had more than a dozen more than a dozen motions to try to uh, either dismiss everything based on the argument that there's no evidence. That was one of the motions. um, And then to try to uh, dismiss some of the individual charges against Paxton. Here's what I found really interesting and significant about those votes. The attorney General's side lost all of them. And I wasn't surprised by that, but I was maybe surprised by the margin Uh, with 30 members of the Senate voting and of course, Angela Paxton is recused from voting, even though she is present on the floor. She was uh, she was forced uh, to recuse from voting uh, by the Senate rules because the, the, the needle that they tried to thread is that the Texas Constitution says that all senators have to sit for the trial. Um, but uh, I don't think anybody, including the majority of the Texas Senate, would agree that if any of us were on uh, trial, that, that we would let our spouse be on the jury, whether they were happy with us or not. Right. You want to we want to have people as impartial as, as possible. Um, but with 30 members voting, the margin of loss for Paxton's side was incredible. It was 24 to 6 for mm-hmm. many of those votes. Mm-hmm. Um, on some of the votes, it was it, it was 22 against him. On some votes, it was 20 against him. But you know how you keep hearing that it's 21 votes to convict in the Senate, two-thirds of those who are present? Um, well, that's technically true. But I would say maybe the political reality of this is that it's really 24 votes to convict in the Senate, and here's why if it's 21 votes then that means it's more democrats voting than republicans to convict the attorney general i don't think that the lieutenant governor dan patrick and the republican members of the senate and i think the democratic members of the senate also probably agree with what i'm about what i'm about to say they don't want anybody to be able to say that their decision was political in nature, or they want to say they want to be able to argue the senators want to argue that it was as removed from politics as possible because you can't take all the politics out of it. Everybody involved in this is a politician, right? All the House members are politicians, senators are politicians, the lieutenant governor, the AG, they're all politicians. Um, but when you have 24 votes against Paxton, that means that there's an even number of Republicans and Democrats, 12 each, who voted. Against Paxton in this case to at least move forward with the trial. And I think that gives the lieutenant governor and the senators, that gives them room to be able to, at the end of this trial, if there's a conviction and there are at least 24 members of the Senate who are willing to convict Paxton, no one can come at them later and say this was something that was led by Democrats, that it was a Democrat majority thing. It's not. It's a truly bipartisan vote. And one of the veterans of the Capitol uh, after those votes uh, on Tuesday, one of the vets uh, there said, hey, Scott, that's probably the most bipartisan political vote I've ever seen in the Texas Senate.
0: Mm, interesting. Uh, so continuing, Scott, on this issue, because we brought up the issue of the of the attorneys there who are making their case. Just talking about the attorneys, Rusty Hardin seems to be um, a grandfatherly, very knowledgeable um, sort of seasoned person. When you look at the the uh, defense side, you've got Tony Busby, and I'm, I'm watching the comments as I'm watching this live. There, there's a stream of comments on the side, and people are, are not kind to him. And the way he looks, because he's got this dark tan, he's got his hair combed back, you can't be too critical of the way a person looks. But visual things actually play a role here, and he looks a little too slick for this. And I'm looking at this thinking, this, it, it probably affects my opinion of him just by seeing that. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are.
1: Look, I think that it's fair to bring up his appearance because he brings it up. You may have seen this morning that as we're taping here on Thursday, um, Tony Busby, the lead defense attorney who you mentioned, he uh, commented on his Instagram account. Uh, that members of the media must be altering his photograph because they're making him look like he's more tan than he really is. Well, nobody was doing that. It's just on the on the live feed of the Texas Senate on the government website. It looks a little bit different from what it looks like in, uh, in person, if you were there. Um, and uh, the point being that uh, he's very focused on his own physical appearance uh, as, this is, as this is unfolding. So that's one thing. Uh, but look, we're talking about somebody who's very adept at uh, manipulating the media and taking on the media. Um, these, these attorneys in this case, we should underscore, are legends, not just in the Houston legal community, but that makes them legends in the Texas and national legal community. Rusty Harden. Dick DeGuerin, the two lead attorneys for the House impeachment managers. Tony Busby, who's the lead attorney for the uh, defense, um, you know, he's somebody who's a flamboyant trial lawyer from Houston. And I should say a plaintiff's lawyer from Houston. How often do we hear Republicans talk about, you know, the trials, the the trial lawyers in this state? Uh, And most of them are Democrats. Interesting that you have some of the uh, supporters of Paxton pointing out that Rusty Harden. Vic think are folks who have voted for Democrats in the past. Tony Busby, the guy you're talking about, the lead attorney for Paxton, he was the Democratic county party chair in Galveston County years ago. Hmm. And he did run for the Texas House as a Democrat against Larry Taylor, who later ended up Senate as the education chairman uh, more recently. Um, and so the, he's on record as being a Democrat. In fact, Tony Busby is running for Houston City Council right now, which is technically a nonpartisan uh, office, but he's running against one of the only Republicans in Houston city government, uh, a Republican member of the uh, city council there. Uh, and so it's it makes me chuckle when these folks say, oh, there's some liberal conspiracy to take down the attorney general, when the people that he's got working for him, including Busby and the second chair um, defense attorney in this, a guy named Dan Cogdell, who's also a legendary uh, criminal, ju- uh, criminal defense attorney from Houston, uh, Cogdell also somebody who would not agree with Paxton's politics, but he's one of those, um, you know, high-powered attorneys you would get if you were in trouble.
0: One other thing about that, the, they seem to be, this is a trial, but it's not like a criminal trial. I mean, you're not going to be able to come back after this and say, we're going to appeal this to a higher court uh, and take some, uh, some of our objections to them. Once mm-hmm. the Senate decides, it's over, isn't it?
1: Right. That's right. There, there's no appeal beyond this. Uh, if The Senate removes Paxton, then he is removed. Uh, as you know, he's suspended right now um that's why a lot of folks uh, in the legal community have been pointing out to me you should see my inbox my text messages and my (laughs) emails right now a lot of lawyers who were saying uh, you know hey why are they even objecting this way or that way when there's no appeal later that's usually why (laughs) a lot of uh, objections happen during trials so um, a lot of that is just simply for the showmanship of it and for the flow of the trial and i would say um to give some credit to lieutenant governor patrick i think he's been pretty even-handed in most of his handling of those various objections from the different attorneys I would say that if there's any criticism of Patrick that you could uh, that, you know that you could levy it would be that uh, he did make what some might call three million dollar uh, decision uh, mm-hmm. about Paxton being compelled to testify on this trial the lieutenant governor said that he cannot be um compelled to testify and I think there's a little bit of contradiction on Patrick's part in some of his public statements just about a week ago Patrick told a television station in Houston, Fox 26 News, there K R I V. Uh, he told that TV station that this is not a criminal trial or a, sim, a civil proceeding. He said, "quote This is a political trial." Close quote. But when he made the ruling saying that Paxton can't be forced to testify, his reasoning had to do with handling this like a criminal trial, in which you would not want to put you you know you you shouldn't be able to put somebody on the stand and force them into a position where they might incriminate themselves.
2: Well, and I think it's important to just point out that this is such uncharted territory for Lieutenant Governor Patrick, for us as, you know, political legislative junkies, as the general public. I think each day I think Dan Patrick becomes a little more sure-footed. Um, Mm -hmm. The objections seemed very chaotic at first. Uh, We've got hearsay and then we're arguing about who's talking over whom. And you had the feeling that nobody really we've got these very, very experienced lawyers who have never been in the situation before. And frankly, the Mm -hmm. state of Texas has not been in the situation before. You can see that with how do we deal with Angela Paxton? Mm -hmm. How, How do you deal with an AG who's being impeached? who's been impeached is going on trial and his wife is a, I mean, this is completely uncharted territory. So I think given the circumstances, we're not sure where we land criminal political legal Mm -hmm. mind. I mean, we've got the best, uh, it's interesting watching this. I just, when it pans the room, you know, you can see Jeff Leach in the background and you Mm -hmm. can see um, Whitmire in the background and you're, you're like, this is a room full of lawyers and legislators and Nobody's been here before. And I think it's that's really an interesting aspect because um, nobody kind of has a a playbook, a a blueprint for this. Um, And I I do think that that aside from his political donation, uh, Lieutenant Governor Patrick's doing a a fair job of just navigating this the, the best way he knows how.
1: I think he's trying to um, take it seriously Mm -hmm. and show the world that they're taking it seriously. Uh, To your point, Addy, I think that it's fair to say that when it comes to impeachments in Texas, there's no real such thing as an expert. As you said, there's all those, you know, applied attorneys, legislators, uh, you know, people who have been uh, veterans of the Texas Senate uh, and others who are part of it as it plays out. um, And they don't know. Uh, exactly where they're going to go with it it you know again to your point rusty harden who we've mentioned here as one of the legendary attorneys in the state there are certain points where he looks confused about what he's supposed to call certain things like for for example um the other day when he was to, you know talking to lieutenant governor patrick um harden didn't even know if he should refer to the room they're in as a court or yes, as the yes. senate or what he right he was asking him what do, how do i refer to the facility <coughs> right so that that's the kind of um,
2: and That's they the say judge that you that or if they don't your know honor that, or senator, know you know, back right. and forth we, with, yes. yes, we're all kind of in it together, I suppose.
1: <laughs> yeah. And so, look, I, I think um, there is only one previous precedent in the state uh, for the impeachment of a statewide office holder. And that was Governor Paul Ferguson in 1917, uh, who at that time uh, he resigned. Before, he was impeached by the House then he was uh, you know going to go to trial in the Senate. He resigned right before the trial was going to happen. The Senate went ahead and held the trial anyway, um, and they not only declared that he uh, should be removed from office, but they also took the separate vote, which is to declare him ineligible to run for office again in Texas. And did you all know that he just ran again anyway?
2: (laughs) Isn't that an option for for Ken Paxton this time around? He ran again
1: anyway. Yeah, I mean, he ran again anyway, um, and uh, he didn't win. He did not win, but, uh, but it's, you know, hey, this is Texas. It's almost like there's no rules
0: around here. Scott, one final question. How long do you expect the impeachment trial to last?
1: At least about two and a half weeks. I could I could see it uh, moving into the beginning of October, mm. uh, potentially, uh, although they're burning up a lot of their time on the prosecution side with these, especially on the prosecution side with these first few witnesses. Uh, both sides have been allocated mm-hmm. a certain number of hours uh, to go through everything. I think total it's 27 hours for each side. Um, and so at, look, I do know this that when the uh, senators last week were doing their dry run, you may know this, they did sort of a run. They closed the doors of the Senate and they did a run through of how this is supposed to work, the things that they're supposed to do and say while they're on the floor. Uh, Apparently, Lieutenant Governor Patrick was not happy with them at certain points because they weren't performing up to par for what he thought they should be. Uh, And he also told them uh, behind closed doors, apparently, that he was going to fine senators $500 a piece if they were not on time. Well, some of the senators uh, said, hey, why don't we just do this the way we do it during regular session? As you all know, as, as uh, legislative junkies, sometimes the Senate will go until midnight or one in the morning when they're working mm-hmm, on certain legislation. Mm-hmm. Some of the senators said, why don't we just do that? Get this knocked out you know, in a week and a half or something. Uh, but Patrick didn't want to do that. He said, no, no, people are going to want to watch this, have it you know, held during the – during daylight hours. Mm -hmm. Nobody can say we did this in the dark of the night. I don't know exactly what his words were. But instead, I do know that he pushed back and said, hey, we're going to do this from nine to six each morning during the weekdays. Um, And he did mention at the beginning of the trial uh, that they may, as of not this weekend, but next weekend, uh, they may work on Saturday as well as they try to get through this. So I do think Two and a half to three weeks is probably fair. If it wraps up before that, I know all the senators, Merrill, will be happy about that. You <laughs> can see so. it on their faces. They were three days into this, and they're, they're, a lot of them seem to be ready, ready for this to be over with. If they were allowed to speak during the proceedings, which they're not, based on the rules that they, they themselves adopted, if the senators were able to jump on the mic now, I'm sure somebody would say, hey, let's just call the <laughs> vote already. Let's do. We, we've heard enough. Let's move forward. But they don't get that. Opportunity.
0: Well, thank you, Scott, for helping us understand what's going on with the Paxton impeachment. If listeners want to find out more about you and the Quorum Report, where, do they, where can they go?
1: Check it out at quorumreport.com, quorumreport.com. You can sign up for our free emails there, and you can also follow me on whatever we're calling it now, X or Twitter or whatever. My (laughs) handle there is, it's just my name, at Scott Braddock.
0: Thank you, Scott. And you can find out much more about a variety of policy issues at our website at IPI.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform? Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next time.